The title of today's sermon is Conversion Happens. And you would have probably guessed about that already based on what we've been seeing in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 2, the Jews being included into the great covenant, the fulfillment of their covenant with Abba Father. Afterwards, to be able to see the great work that was done as the gospel began to spread. To see the, the, the conversion of the Ethiopian eunuch. The conversion of the Samaritans. The conversion of the highest achieving rabbi of their day in Saul, Paul. And now we're going to see the door opening to the conversion of, wait for it, wait for it, the Gentiles. This is a massive new pivot in the history of, of, of the world. And here it is on these pages that we have before us. Let's pray together and then we'll go to look at Acts chapter 10. God, thank you that you included us in the covenant. You didn't need to. Uh, we certainly didn't deserve it. Uh, there is nothing about ourselves even that would have come before you to think, let's, uh, let's include these folks. Uh, but praise God that that has been the legacy and that is the, the path in which we now get to join a stream of not just faith, but a stream of conversions where we can be made new. Uh, where we don't have to have insecurity, where we don't have to wonder whether we've been included but that you make it so clear, not only through the sacrifice of your son, but the clarity of the change in our lives that bring us into full communion with you. Thank you, God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So this week I went to a couple uh, graduation parties. Uh, one was for Sarah. The other was for Julianne. And sometimes it's easy to think in terms of world paradigms or world examples of our striving for a relationship with God. And it's easy to perhaps even think of things like getting your diploma at the end of 18 years of school, how many, 12 years of school, uh, and, and having really kind of you know, given your all and, and come to that great place and, and then to have a nice ceremony. You dress up in a gown, you walk across the stage, you get a certificate, a certificate that kind of opens doors for you, a certificate that could perhaps launch you down a, a, a path into a, in a career, uh, launch you down a path into further education. Praise God that, that you all experience that. But that is actually a very harmful way of thinking about how we come into a relationship with God. There is not some sort of a gradual, growing, gaining step by step, and, and then just simply a, an affirmation of all of the work that you've done. Uh, as a matter of fact, that could be one of the most harmful things that we have, to pollute the very idea of how it is that we are gathered together in God. And it happens through conversion. Conversion, conversion is a word we throw around a lot. And the reason it is, is that in the Latin Bible, when it got translated into Latin, the word for turning to the Lord in the Latin Bible is conversi. Uh, for example, in Matthew uh, chapter 18, Jesus says of anyone that would want to come to know God, anyone that would enter the kingdom of heaven, he says that unless you change, unless you turn and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. In the Latin Bible, that change or turn that Jesus talks about gets translated conversi. 
or in, in other uh, forms of that verb, conversio, where we get the word conversion. And so we've always kind of used the word conversion because of, of that idea of ultimately, finally turning to the Lord. And it's such a definitive moment throughout the Bible. We see conversions of the people that I've already mentioned, and we're going to see the conversion of Cornelius, as well as a lot of his friends and family in this, in this aspect right here. But, but I want us to, to deeply appreciate what we see here on these pages and to recognize that this is a non-negotiable from God. There is no coming to him without conversion. There's no turning to the Lord without turning to the Lord, which is, which is all that, that the conversion really means. But, but also to recognize that it happens on his initiative, on his terms, and with his beautiful security that this is really the experience of our lives. So we're going to begin over in Acts chapter 10. So turn over there with me, please. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian regiment. He and all his family were devout and God-fearing. I'm going to take a, a moment here as I go through the text and just point out a few things. So the word devout is pretty deep and it is a very lofty term today it sounds very positive but then if you could perhaps even imagine of being one of the greatest acclamations of a person who is aspiring to have a relationship with god that would be this word the word in the original language is eusebius there is a historian probably the most famous early christian historian who lived in this same town of Caesarea as well. And the word that he took on for his Christian name was based on this description of Cornelius. For him, the most famous of, of all of the residents of Caesarea. But the word that he took on for his name was Eusebius. And so this word Eusebius as being then applied to Cornelius, we're looking at a guy who's got it going on. But nonetheless, we'll, we'll see in a moment that it takes a whole lot more than just having it going on to really be in a right relationship with God. He and all his family were devout and God-fearing. God-fearing is the closest you could get to being in a covenant with God if you're not a Jew at that time. So the Gentiles were all God-fearers because they actually read the Hebrew Scriptures, studied them, participated as much as they could in a synagogue service and worship. They were all in with every aspect of it, but they were not in the covenant yet because they were Gentiles. And so God-fearer is, again, him pushing it as far as he could go. Look, look at what else is described about him. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. One day at about three in the afternoon, he had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius. Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord? He asked. The angel answered, your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now, send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon, who is called Peter. He is staying with Simon the Tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had gone, Cornelius called his servants and a devout soldier who was one of his attendants. 
he told them everything that had happened and sent them to Joppa. Okay, so we've got this fellow here who is A number one, up one side, down the other, as you look at all aspects of his life. He is a Roman soldier who is in charge of a hundred men as a centurion, who is a capable man, he's got his act together, life is all arranged well, and on top of all of that, despite being a Roman, despite being an occupier, he has humbled himself to the degree that he is now as one over these, this Jewish population, one who has become a God-fearer of Yahweh, their God. Regular prayers, gifts to the poor, we see all, and he's even having an impact on the people around him. We'll see that all of his family and friends are likewise joining him in his example, and the soldiers that are under him, even one of those soldiers is called Eusebius, is called a devout soldier. This is a guy who's got it going on, but this is important to note, this does not save him. None of what is just described here will have any merit towards his salvation. So why spend all this ink on how awesome he is? Because he's got to be this awesome not to convince God to save him. He's got to be this awesome to convince the Jews to include him. And so to have the breakthrough into the covenant from Gentiles and Peter, who is rather scrupulous about this aspect of his Jewish heritage, as well as his Christianity, Peter needs a little bit of convincing along the way. And if he's going to include into the covenant some sort of a idol-worshipping, beer-swilling, prostituting Gentile, well, that's probably going to be a bridge too far for him. And in order to help the Jewish community that have become Christians first bring on in this brand new ethnicity with, with all of the baggage that is long-term baggage between Jews and Gentiles, God needs a forerunner that's got it going on. But, so point number one, conversion starts with God. And we're going to see through, throughout this narrative, Cornelius seeking God with a whole lot of gusto and a whole lot of priority. But at the same time, we're going to be seeing God work and God work in ways that Cornelius could not even begin to imagine, even as he's getting after his daily discipline of prayer and almsgiving and Bible study and worship and all that goes into the piety of being devout. Because at the same time that he's going about this, look at what God is already doing for Cornelius. It says, about noon the following day, as they were on their journey, these are the envoys from Caesarea, the, the, um, the town along the Mediterranean Sea, going down the Mediterranean Sea coast to Joppa, where Peter happens to be um, staying with, with uh, Simon the Tanner. About noon the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. So again, th think of like these two worlds colliding, right? Cornelius and all that's going on there, getting ready, we're gonna go ask Peter, help us out, and then Peter, down the, down the shore, having all of these events going on at the same time, and they're all going to collide in a beautiful orchestration of God. Peter went up to the roof to pray. He became hungry, wanted something to eat, and while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. 
He saw heaven opened and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals, as well as reptiles and birds. Then a voice told him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. The word impure here has to go with the idea of how you kill an animal. And unclean has to do with what type of an animal you would eat. Uh, so it actually goes right back to, he's been told kill and eat. And his retort is, kill not in a manner that, that would be impure. And eat, no, not anything that is unclean. But he sees, again, a kosher animal is, you know, hung and, and, and bled. All, all of that goes, you know, exactly right for an animal to be clean and then for, for an animal to, to be something, I'm, I'm sorry, to be pure. And then for an animal to eat, it would only be certain animals. All of this is being blown up in the sensibilities of Peter. And it is, it's, a, it's a mind-blowing realization that's coming his way because he is being told through this unclean food situation that I'm going to include stuff in the covenant that you never imagined. And that stuff is not just these animals, it's people that eat food like this too, uh, which is a big deal. That means Gentiles, of course. And just as a side note, Peter's full name is Simon Barjona. We know that from the Gospels. And he happens to be in a city of Joppa. Now, there was another very famous prophet named Jonah who went to the city of Joppa. But he didn't go there to do God's will. He went there to escape God's will. Because Joppa likewise is a, a port city. And there was a ship there in Joppa. And it was headed as far from Jonah's mission as he could go. It was headed up to Spain, to Tarshish. Uh, and he got aboard that ship. And any of you who have watched VeggieTales? Well, I don't want to spoil it. But there are some twists and turns in that story. Jonah's a reluctant prophet. Peter is a reluctant prophet. But the beauty of Peter's conversion is that he is no longer resisting the will of God. Now, he is obviously having his mind blown by, by this vision. But nonetheless, Peter has learned his lesson. And he was restored by the Lord three times. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? After three times having denied him, Peter is ready to now serve the Lord, as he has been doing. Uh, by the way, the idea of a large sheet being lowered, too, has more ties to the story of Jonah, because the word for sheet is really just the word for a sail. And so it's the sail of a ship that is being lowered before him by which he sees this. And also, when is it that Jonah is kind of startled from, from his keep on keeping on away from the Lord, it's while he's in the middle of a deep sleep. And it seems that there is some sort of a deep trance that's going on here with Peter as well. But I won't belabor that point other than to say, God is so cool the way that he has parallels like this and, and kind of fulfills his will in ways that show, you know what, this time it's going different. And why did Jonah do all that he did? Not because he didn't want to serve God, he did. 
The reason that he ran away is because he hated the Gentiles and he didn't want them to hear the word of the Lord. Peter is going to be a different story. Peter's going to bring it to the Gentiles. Surely not nothing impure or unclean. Verse 15, the voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times. It's a little pattern in our friend Peter's life the three times, and immediately the, the sail was taken back up to heaven. When Peter was wondering about the meaning of the vision, the men sent by Cornelius found out where Peter's house was, stopped at the gate. They called out asking if Simon, who was known as Peter, was staying there. While Peter was still thinking about the vision, the spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you. So get up, go downstairs. Do not hesitate to go with them. I have sent them. Peter went down, said to the men, I'm the one you're looking for. And by the way, why have you come? The men replied, we have come from Cornelius the Centurion. If you're a Jew, this sends off all kinds of alarms for you, doesn't it? First of all, he's not a Jew. Second of all, he's a Gentile. Third of all, he's a Roman Gentile. Fourth of all, he's an occupier who is defiling your nation. And fifth of all, he is also a commander over a whole lot of other soldiers that are defiling and occupying your nation. So for Peter to hear Cornelius the centurion, is not like, oh, that's not, like, oh, what? Why would I be beckoned by, by such a defiled, compromised human being as that? But nonetheless, he, he says, uh, he, speaking of him, now, again, why, why we have such a great example in Cornelius is because hearing the word to, to Peter, Cornelius the centurion, but then the quick follow-up, and he's a righteous and God-fearing man who's respected by all the Jewish people. He really is. Everybody says so. A holy angel told him to ask you to come to his house so that he could hear what you have to say. Then, and this is a remarkable by Peter, then Peter invited the men into the house to be his guests. That threshold that they are separated by right now during the conversation keeps Peter in good stead in his original paradigm of what it is to be in alignment with the will of God. And for him to say, cross the threshold, Peter is a man who's now surrendered to the will of God, even beyond his own preconceptions. The next day, Peter started out with them, and some of the believers from Joppa went along. The following day, he arrived in Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them, and he called together his relatives and close friends. As Peter entered the house, Cornelius met him, fell at his feet in reverence. But Peter made him get up. Stand up, he said. I'm only a man myself. So again, Cornelius is like right out of central casting for the most helpful of all Gentiles that Peter could ever encounter. And praise God for the character that is already in Cornelius. But know this for sure, Cornelius is not yet converted. Cornelius is not yet right with the Lord. Uh, and, and that's a rather important point to, to all of this. But at the same time, know this too, that Cornelius's conversion did not begin in and of himself. Cornelius's conversion began squarely with God. And then as we think about this, uh, C.S. Lewis writes something interesting. He says that the man who speaks about searching for God, I think 
is pretty far off and mistaken. It would be like, if you were to say, I'm searching for God, it would be kind of like a mouse saying, I'm searching for a cat. The mouse doesn't search for the cat. The cat searches for the mouse. But in saying that, what he means to convey is this idea that we don't even really know what we're after. We don't even really know what we're going to encounter. And if it wasn't for a God who has such an intensity and, and such a built-in character to, to search with all that he has for us, there's no way we would ever be on a search for the Lord. And it, it's also good news, too, that it is God who really begins the search. It is God who initiates all of this because there's a lot of us that have spent many years searching that could feel a lot of anxiety of, am I ever, ever going to find the Lord? Am I ever going to come to the place where I can be reconciled with God and all of this searching will end the way that it was meant to, to end? Again, if you think that, you're giving yourself too much credit. The very fact that you're searching shows that God has already initiated a search with you. Because in and of your flesh, and you know this, in and of your flesh, there would be nothing in of you, in or part of you, that would really want to be getting after God. As a matter of fact, in my flesh, I was happy to have a blissful ignorance of God. I wanted the party to continue. I wanted the self-interest to remain unchecked. I wanted the selfish ambition to proceed unhindered. I wanted all of that. And I knew when God started kind of coming into the scene there, that was going to really throw a wrench into the works of what my flesh was, was really wanting. So appreciate this. The very fact that you have an emptiness that is not yet filled by Jesus, that is not yet filled with a radically confident relationship with the Lord, that's great news. It's great news because God is the only one who could put that emptiness there for you. God is the only one that could ever get you to care about such a thing. If this was a search in and of your flesh, it wouldn't be a search for something that was going to ultimately put an end to your flesh. Our self-preservation fleshliness rails against self-denial. But you know deep down as you search for God that at the end of the day, it's going to have, as a big part of it, a radical denial of self. So appreciate that. Appreciate even on your, on your path, even if it is rocky and, and, and filled with ups and downs, steps forwards, 50 steps back, trudging forward again, that all of that has already been orchestrated by God. As Cornelius has been God-fearing, going to the synagogue, figuring out these new Hebrew scriptures, he's been stationed in, in this God-forsaken place, according to all of his compatriots, but yet now he begins to seek God. All of that happened, not because Cornelius is all that, it's because God put him in front of just the right Jews, in front of just the right synagogue, in front of just the right passage of scripture. And all the while, he's not been doing that for Cornelius alone. He's also been orchestrating all of these events with Peter. 
getting it all to kind of come together. You know, I, I love what um, has been happening on our Navy base in the last couple weeks. The, um, the Vassalos have been there. and we're, we're finally back on the base and we're knocking on the doors of the barracks and inviting people to church. And in the one single night where 12 people came out and studied the Bible, three of them said explicitly, you know what? It was just today that I was praying that I needed to figure out my relationship with Jesus. Just today. I rarely think about that. Here I'm just thinking about it. And, and then you come here. Again, that person in the, that, that, that sailor might have been thinking, yeah, I guess it's because, no, it wasn't because you were so earnest. It wasn't because you were so devout in your seeking. God had brought this couple from Melbourne, Australia. That's how they say it there. They don't say Melbourne. I say Melbourne. From Melbourne, Australia, all the way around the world, to land here to be the most unlikely people to have a heart to go on to our United States naval base and, and really beseech people to join them to study the scriptures and learn about God. God is working, God is already seeking you out. It, it, it is not just us in, in the process of that. All conversion begins with God. So reading on, uh, I don't know where I'm at. Let's just say verse 30. Cornelius answered, oh no, 27. While talking with him, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. He said to them, you are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate or visit a Gentile. By the way, he says this having just crossed the threshold into Cornelius' house. Right? It's one thing to let some Gentiles into Simon the Tanner's house. It's another thing now for Peter to cross that threshold himself. But anyway, moving on. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. Those same words that he used earlier. So when I was sent for, I came without raising any objections. And finally, why am I here? May I ask why you sent for me? Cornelius answered, three days ago, I was in my house praying at this hour at three in the afternoon. Suddenly, a man in shining clothes stood before me and said, Cornelius, God has heard your prayer and remembered your gifts to the poor. By the way, shining clothes here uh, it often speaks of the idea that the, the angels appeared in, in some sort of clothing that was so white, brighter than, than the bright white uh, at, at the tomb. You, you see them you know, shining as they're there. It's, it's not the idea of like, you know, like someone from New Jersey wears a suit that's kind of shiny. Um, it's not, not that kind of shiny, okay? Although, New Jersey's quite impressive. Uh, th this, is, this is much more so of what he's describing as what has come before him. And again, the angel said, Cornelius, God has heard your prayer and remembered your gifts to the poor. Why is Cornelius saying this? He's saying this for Peter's sake. Send to Joppa for Simon, who is called Peter. He is a guest in the home of Simon the Tanner, who lives by the sea. So I sent for you immediately, and it was good of you to come. Now, we're all here in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to tell us. Then Peter began to speak. I now realize 
how true it is that God does not show favoritism. Let me pause there and get to my second point. Conversion is humbling. The angel comes to, comes to Cornelius, a guy who's got it going on as we've already recounted, and you'd think at the end of it, the angel would say to him, and Cornelius, here's why I've come. We're up in heaven, and we're like, check him out. You go boy, so cool, so great. And here's why I'm here. Keep it up. You're doing awesome. God is digging it. He's, you know what? The big guy wants to just send you his regards and say, you know what? You keep this up. You're going to be sitting pretty up inside the heavenly realm. He doesn't say that. You know what the angel says to him as the story began? Your prayers, your gifts have come before the Lord as a memorial offering. And now go send for Peter because you have to get converted. Again, if anyone wouldn't need conversion, it would be this guy. Or how about Paul, who just got converted in the previous chapter? A guy who had excelled in Christian, in, uh, I'm sorry, in Judaism beyond all his peers. A guy who knew the Bible better than perhaps anybody else. Not just the smartest guy in the room, the most righteous guy in the room. If anyone doesn't need to be converted, it would have been him. Or, or how about the Ethiopian eunuch who's, who just makes you almost want to cry. He's so sincere. He's so earnest. He's had such setbacks in life, but yet he doesn't in any way deter from doggedly following and, and trying to find God. I mean, such a sincere, beautiful heart in that minister of finance of Africa. And yet he too needs to be converted. But let's, let's read on as we keep that in mind. Then Peter began to speak. I now realize the truth is God doesn't show favoritism, accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. You know the message God sent to the people of Israel, announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. This is the gospel coming off the lips of Peter to a whole room of Gentiles. You know what has happened throughout the province of Judea. He would have known this as a, as a centurion. Beginning in Galilee, after the baptism that John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power. And how he went around doing good, healing all who were under the power of the devil, because God was with him. We're witnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging him on a cross. God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. He was not seen by all the people, but by witnesses whom God had already chosen. By us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as a judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him. Again, Cornelius would have known all the prophets as a God-fearer. And everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on Gentiles. For they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Then Peter said, Surely no one can stand in the way of their being baptized with water. They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. Wow, right? Cornelius is brought into covenant relationship with God, but not 
by the progression unto a diploma of goodness, but by a radical restart, rebirth, conversion that needs to occur. And, and again, here we see it just as we've seen it in everybody else that I've mentioned in the book of Acts, that it happens by being born again. To be born again. Jesus says this to a man who also was Israel's teacher, Mr. Insight into the Bible, Nicodemus, who's humble enough to come to Jesus and say to him, Master, we know that you are from God. A man with humility, stature, accomplishment, righteousness comes to Jesus and Jesus says to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, Nicodemus, no one, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. The path is not going to occur by progression. The path is going to occur by a radical transformation conversion. Nicodemus is confused. What do you mean born again? And Jesus then says, to, to, to say almost the exact same thing again to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and spirit. Thus describing how it is that one will be born again. To be born again is to be born of water and spirit. Interestingly, all that were converted in Acts chapter 2 by Peter, they were all cut to the heart and said, what should we do? He tells them the same thing. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Paul, when, when the gospel is finally brought to him, Ananias says to him, God has chosen you to be his special instrument, and you will bring the gospel to all the Gentiles. And then he says to him, after all of this accomplishment and all of this assertion by God, and then he says to him, oh, wait a minute. What are you waiting for? Get up, be baptized, and wash your sins away, calling on his name. Do you see this again and again? Every conversion that we experience throughout this chronicle of the early church Everyone, the Philippian jailer, Lydia, the slave woman, you pick it one after another as we make our way through the book of Acts. They don't get there because suddenly they're ushered into a diploma ceremony having accomplished so much. They get there having been humbled, realizing that unless you turn, unless you change, unless you humble yourself and be born again, you have no chance of seeing the kingdom of God. You will not enter the kingdom of God, to quote Jesus on this. But how wonderful is that? That it is so clear, so wonderfully experiential on, on, on our part, that we get to experience a rebirth, a restart. Who doesn't like to hit the reset button? I know when you guys are playing video games, and it's not going well, if you don't have a cheat code, then it's like, well, let me hit the reset button. <laughs> New life, look, the energy bar is all the way over here. With this reset, the energy bar is all the way over here, and it's shining gold, and it never diminishes. This is the great promise that God gives you. But again, please hear this. I don't know 
All that you've accomplished. I don't know how well you know the scriptures. My, my goodness, just, just yesterday, Bami and I were sitting with, uh, with someone. It's actually Marianne's husband. And this is a guy who has a deep knowledge of the scriptures, has read through the Bible year after year after year. This is a guy who has served God with all his heart. This is a guy who has gotten in trouble at work for, for trying to bring the gospel into the workplace. This is a guy who's now looking for a new job because he can't be here on Sunday morning. This is a guy who's had this kind of an earnest lifetime pursuit of God. But it's also a guy who realized, oh my goodness. The Bible says, repent and be baptized. And despite all of his accomplishments, he was humbled by the word of God. And realized, I never did this. Sure, I had a, a baptism experience, when I was, but I never, it wasn't out of faith. It wasn't because I had repented. And I realize now that only through repentance and this rebirth can I ever, ever know God. And this is a man who has every right to take great pride in his religious accomplishments. But praise God that this afternoon... Nolan is getting baptized into Christ. Marianne didn't know that. Nolan wanted me to tell her today. I forgot to tell her earlier, so I'm, I'm including it now. No, but Nolan is. I mean, what a, what, 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 a, what a genuine, what a genuine example of humility, of, of realizing, you know what? I've known a lot of stuff, but it's all been filtered by tradition. I've known a lot of stuff, and now I need to be humbled to realize, no, 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 I need a restart. Amen. Not, not a, a, another Bible study that's just going to, in a sense, turbocharge my already awesome walk in the Lord. Again, if you're here right now and you're thinking, oh, maybe I'll get a word of the Lord that'll just kind of give me a bit of a boost, maybe another leg up, maybe a, an advancement in my insight, in my effectiveness in God, please hear this. That's not what God wants for you. God wants you to know what it is to finally be his child by being reborn. God wants you to know the security that comes with this by, by really allowing him to, to humble you to the place of a restart. Uh, also, notice this. Conversion happens via the word. When does... All of this become clear to Cornelius. When does all of this become clear to Peter? The Holy Spirit falls on them as they begin to believe the word of the Lord. Peter, beginning in verse 34, preaches the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord. It's massive. It's a big deal. The word of the Lord. Is it enlightening? Sure. Does it bring peace? Sure. Does it heal marriages? Sure. Does it heal families? Yes. Is it still relevant? Yes. But none of that matters. What matters is what Peter talks about. Is it true? Christianity is worthless if it isn't true. Even if you think that some form of Christianity healed your entire family, if it isn't true, none of that matters. But Christianity is not true because it heals. 
it heals because it's true. If you really want to be converted, get deep into the word of the Lord and appreciate the depth to which it is true. That Jesus really died for you. That Jesus really is historical as a figure and as an atonement in your life. Christianity is true. And the way that we know it is through God's ordained vehicle, the word of God. And please, if you've not been pursuing God in the way that he has initiated for you to pursue him through his word, my goodness, rearrange it to run to that place of conversion, which will happen through the word of God. Now, if you've spent a lot of time in the word of God, and even I, in my kind of messed up thinking that I was seeking God in my 20s, spent time in the word of God, but it all never had a real effect. I didn't really become someone that began to you know, live my life for the cause of Christ. I just let Christ be sprinkled into my life. But what happened was is that ultimately I had someone that asked me to take all the filters off of the Word of God. And the biggest filters were traditions. You say, well, yes, the Bible does say that. But in our church, this is what we do with that. Holy smokes. Would you actually discount the Word of the Lord because of a tradition? Frightening. That would be the height of blindness. The height of fright, if, if that trumps in any way the word of the Lord. And for me, though, the other thing that filtered the word of the Lord was my stinking self-interest. Because I knew that if I went by the word of the Lord, my agenda was going to be a little bit more difficult. And so I would read it and filter it so that my agenda could keep on rolling. What I needed was a spiritual friend who had actually allowed the word of the Lord to change his agenda. And it really had to be somebody like that for me. And, and then for him to just simply have the same expectations for me. That I would read it unfiltered by either my religious tradition or even by my, my fleshly agenda. And, and, and having someone that really did that and really helped me to actually determine that this was going to be not only the belief system of my life, but the practice of my life, Jesus is the one who says too, don't merely listen to the word, do what it says. Then you'll know the power of it. If you merely listen to it, all you're doing is becoming a religious hypocrite. Do what it says is the great power. Conversion happens through the word. That's easy to say, but there's a lot you've got to peel away so that that could be the reality of your life. And maybe work it out with, with people that are here that you know have allowed that to be peeled away in their lives. And get with someone who has allowed all of those layers of filter to be peeled away so that conversion can happen to you as well. And then finally, complete, uh, conversion is not just started by God, but completed by God. You know, Hebrews 2 says he is the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. We don't start to seek God if it wasn't for him to be the pioneer initiating that. And it's not completed except in the Lord. But by the way, I had a, uh, another title for this point, but it didn't seem as pithy. Instead of uh, conversion is completed by God, conversion is unmistakably experiential and inextricably tied to Jesus' atonement. Which is very true, but doesn't sound as good as conversion is completed in God. But conversion finally happens when Peter recognizes Hey, you know what happened to us in the beginning in Acts 2? 
Remember what happened there? As the Holy Spirit came down and confirmed the word of the Lord. And the Holy Spirit really drew us to preach the word. And then the Holy Spirit convicted the crowds of their sin, their righteousness and their judgment. And those crowds all came together and said, what should we do? And the Holy Spirit gave Peter the words, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is for you, for your children, for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them and pleaded with them, save yourselves, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. And that day, when those who received the message were baptized, 3,000 that day. This completion in God occurs in an event that is unmistakably experiential and inextricably tied to the atonement of Jesus. Our conversion is all predicated on Jesus's death, burial, and resurrection. Jesus taking my sins, being buried with my filth, rising in glory to new life, and then beckoning me to do the same. Die with those sins. Die with that flesh. Be buried and be brought to new life. Jesus says it this way. You must be born again. You must be born of water and spirit. Paul says it this way. He saved us not because of righteous things we've done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washtub of rebirth and the renewal by the Holy Spirit. Peter says it as we just saw in Acts 2.38. Repent and be baptized, every one of you. Now, again, the, the, the baptism that, the, that Cornelius and his household experiences, the baptism that Paul experienced in the previous chapter, the baptism that the Samaritans experienced, the baptism where the Ethiopian eunuch heard the gospel, was affected by the word and said, look, here's water, how about me? The baptism that brought all of the Jews into the covenant. The baptism that will bring Lydia into the covenant. The baptism that will bring the Philippian jailer into the covenant. All of that, all of that is this beautiful experience in God. It's not vague. It's not nebulous. It's not, oh, did I pray Jesus into my heart earnestly enough. God wants something this big to be unmistakable. And that for me... As much as I've had missteps in my, my last 20 some odd years in Christ, I never doubt that on March 17th of 1993, I was unmistakably and inextricably converted by the atonement of Jesus Christ. I have no doubt that I was buried with him in baptism and raised with him through my faith in the power of God. I'm quoting Paul there. In, in Colossians chapter 2. Uh, it's, a, it's a wonderful conclusion to the story. And it's a wonderful conclusion to any of our stories. As we launch into brand new life in God. And so conversion happens. But conversion happens because God has already started to happen in your life. Conversion happens. But, but, but conversion happens because he wants you to realize it's not about your achievement. It's about you finally being humble enough to receive it the way that he wants. Conversion happens when you allow the word of God to direct you. And when you realize that it's all true and you're going to put it into practice, you're on a beautiful collision course with conversion. And conversion at the end happens when we are reborn.
reborn of water and spirit, the Holy Spirit being able to take us from old to new. All this is from God, the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith, the initiator and the completer, the author and the perfecter, as, as some translations say. If this is not yet your experience in Christ, my goodness, you don't have to climb a mountain or swim a sea here. You just simply need to have someone help you take away the filters, see the beauty and the clarity of the Word of God, and rejoice, rejoice that you were able to be humbled by Jesus, by His love, and made so secure that on this Father's Day, you really were set on a course to truly have Abba, Father, in the Lord. Amen. Amen.